Let's pray. Heavenly Father, because of Jesus Christ, your grace to us, your mercy to us, through him, giving us faith in him, because of Jesus, we come into your presence to seek your help. By your Holy Spirit, will you take your own word and use it to comfort and challenge us. Help us to know Jesus as you truly present him in your word. In his name we ask, amen. Now that the holiday season is behind us, we're back in our study of Acts. And we're now all the way at Acts 19 where we catch up with Paul again on his third missionary journey out from the Antioch church. Paul left on his third missionary journey out from the Antioch church. Can you put that map up there for me, Jonathan? So here we have, this is the region of Antioch in Syria, and Paul travels uh, westward, He goes through the region of Galatia and Phrygia there, and he comes to the southern part of Asia Minor, and he will be in Ephesus. While Paul is in Ephesus, we had recently looked at Apollos. Apollos leaves and goes over here to Achaia, and he's going to spend most of his time in Corinth. So while Apollos is in Corinth, the Apostle Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul is about to begin a long and fruitful ministry there. Read with me in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul responded, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So then in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Pick up in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for about two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In Acts 19, with the ministry of Paul in Ephesus, Luke demonstrates the difference that Jesus makes. The difference that Jesus makes by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit for those, for and in those who personally repent and believe in him. We'll see in the first 10 verses that the emphasis is that 
The object of our faith is Jesus. We'll see in the next 10 verses that Jesus isn't someone to be used for your own purposes. Jesus' name isn't a magic wand that you wave around to get what you want. God isn't Santa Claus. Jesus isn't a genie in a bottle. And then in the the rest of the chapter, we will see that there is conflict for those of us who recognize the difference that Jesus makes. But that's still what we will be focusing on. So today, as we look at Jesus, as the Jesus makes the difference, he is the object of our faith, I want you to notice these two things from our text. The presence and the power of the Spirit corresponds directly to faith in Jesus. And in that second section, entrance into God's kingdom for anyone is contingent upon faith in Jesus. Now, of course, that sounds very informational. As always, when we study God's word, the point of this is that you will trust in Christ, that you will love him more, that you will follow him more faithfully, that you will worship Christ the way that he deserves to be worshiped. Let's look first again at verses 1 through 7, at the presence and the power of the Spirit corresponding directly to faith in Jesus. We read that in Ephesus, Paul found some disciples. But what kind of disciples are these? We quickly discover that these are disciples of John the Baptist who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul catches a deficiency, a lack of evidence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these disciples. You notice that Paul must have noticed some kind of deficiency in order for him to ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Um, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us that there would still be those who have been, who had been in Palestine at some point during John's ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist, but didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus because they had left the region after the ministry of John the Baptist, and now they resided all the way in Ephesus, so they had they didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They didn't know about his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit to be with and in his people. And it shouldn't even surprise us that there were, there were even though there were other believers in Ephesus, that not everyone in Ephesus had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. From our own experience, that doesn't surprise us. Has everyone that you know clearly and persuasively heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, these disciples of John, these disciples of John the Baptist were so close, but close isn't good enough. They do not lack sincerity. Do they lack religious sincerity? Do they lack sincerity of devotion to God? They don't lack sincerity. They lack Jesus. They must become disciples of Jesus Christ. So Paul now has the great privilege to explain to these followers of John the Baptist, about 12 men, we hear in verse 7, that the fulfillment of what John had taught was in fact accomplished in Jesus Christ. The key to understanding this section is in verse 4, when Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, telling the people to believe in, yes, Jesus, the Christ. So John the Baptist's point 
is the goal of repentance is faith in Jesus. Repentance is turning from one belief, from one way of life, and turning to another belief and another way of life. You understand that, right? So what John the Baptist was doing as the forerunner was he was preparing people with a baptism of repentance to turn from one thing and turn to Jesus Christ. He's the object of faith. He's the purpose of repentance is to turn to Jesus. All four Gospels note note with very specific clarity that this was the purpose of the ministry of John the Baptist, to be the forerunner pointing to the greater one coming after him, the Messiah. The one John pointed to for them to believe in is Jesus, Paul explains. All of the New Testament agrees with John the Baptist and with Paul that the goal of our repentance is faith in Jesus. And then these men who are here and they hear this, they prove their belief by being immediately baptized in the name of Jesus. And being baptized in the name of Jesus is not to say that it's different than being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to the Great Commission. The point is that to be baptized in the name of Jesus means that they have believed in his person, that he is Messiah and Lord, and in, the, in his work on their behalf, his death and resurrection. Jesus' name, as we said earlier, is not a magic wand. And we'll see in the very next episode that Luke recounts in Ephesus, where the sons of Sceva learn the hard way that invoking the name of Jesus for your own purposes is worse than pointless. It's dangerous. On the contrary, to do something in the name of Jesus... To invoke the name of Jesus is to identify him as the object of our faith. To explain further, look at Psalm 20, verse 7 as a comparison. This is what that psalm says. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Notice that the point is where their confidence lies. They trust in the God who identifies himself as Yahweh. When it capitalizes Lord in your English translation, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. They trust in Yahweh, not in chariots and not in horses. They trust in Yahweh, our Elohim, our strong creator, the ruler of the universe. That's whom we put our trust in. Just as trusting in God's name is to identify the one in whom we put our trust, so belief and and then subsequent baptism in Jesus' name is to identify the object of our faith. So even praying in Jesus' name is to identify, to acknowledge Jesus as the means by which we enter the presence of a holy God. Do you often say in Jesus' name without thinking about why you say in Jesus' name? One of my young friends here at Branson Bible Church begins and ends his prayers as a reminder to himself and to us. He begins his prayers in Jesus' name, I pray. That that is, that, that is Jesus Christ in whom he is able to enter into the presence of God. 
So these 12 are therefore baptized in the name of Jesus, identifying him as the object of their faith. Now, since these men were already, already baptized by John, apparently at some point, why are they re-baptized now? Well, when they were previously baptized, they were not doing so in obedience to Jesus, but in obedience to John's call to repent and to prepare for the Messiah. The shift in what baptism symbolizes explains the difference then and the need for them to do this. Baptism now symbolizes our our identification with Jesus. So remember we just said, when we talk about um, invoking the name of Jesus, that's to identify him as the object of our faith. And now baptism symbolizes our identification with Jesus Christ. John's baptism was symbolic of a commitment to repent of sin So the idea would have been cleansing yourself and recommitting oneself to God. The baptism in Christ now symbolizes, yes, true cleansing and complete forgiveness in Jesus, but it also symbolizes the means by which Jesus accomplished this cleansing and forgiveness. It symbolizes the means by which Jesus does this, which is his sacrificial death and his resurrection life. And our participation in that with him, dying to self, buried with him, and rising again to new life in Christ. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, just so you can understand this symbolism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be be united with him in a resurrection like his. Knowing this symbolism, baptism then is an obedient expression in which we identify ourselves publicly with Christ and his people. But physical baptism is the shadow, and spirit baptism is the reality. Physical baptism is the shadow, spirit baptism is the reality. Paul's question to them was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Again, here's the central message John the Baptist taught, which, as I said, is in all four Gospels, and is extremely critical to our understanding. He said that he, John, said that he baptized with water, but that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 is an example of this, found in all four Gospels. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism, even that we participate in, is merely symbolic. What people need is to be spiritually raised from the dead. And that can only take place by the work of God through his Holy Spirit. So we participate in in physical water baptism in obedience to Christ's command, but the act of immersing ourselves in water, even in the name of Jesus, does not save. 
It is the baptism of the Spirit by which we are given spiritual life in Christ Jesus that saves us. So water baptism is like the theatrical production of a historical event that has already taken place. Henry VIII, the play by Shakespeare, with some of his own details added in. But that's not what we're doing. Our water baptism is like the theatrical production of a historical event that has already taken place. Physical baptism is to obediently tell the story of what Christ has done in us by his spirit. So that means it could also be the case that you could, you could participate in some outward sign, couldn't you? And that you could be telling a false narrative. It may not actually be true of you, and yet you give some kind of outward sign. Just as we might say that you could walk to the front of a church and behave as if you are committing your life to Christ, and yet the internal thing did not actually take place. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we also see a repeat theme in this text that the ongoing presence and power of the Spirit is confirming evidence of new life through faith in Jesus. In the context of Acts more broadly, this, what takes place in verse 6, was tangible evidence for them that they had now received the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it's tangible evidence for them, these recipients of faith in Jesus Christ, and it's confirming once more that these two are joined into the one true church in Christ in whom the Spirit dwells. They are now a part of the new covenant people in Jesus Christ. Even Paul laying hands on them to pray for them for these manifestations of the Spirit is undoubtedly connected to this confirmation for them and for others. Remember that this is now the third such event in Acts that mirrored the original event at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on them in power and filled them and they began to speak in languages that they had not previously spoken and they began prophesying praise to God. And I'm telling you, this is now the third time something like this has happened as confirmation for them that they are indeed a part of the body of Christ and for the larger body of Christ to recognize these former, these former disciples of, of John the Baptist are now disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember when the, the Gentiles believed in Samaria at the ministry of Philip, and then Peter and John came down in Acts chapter 8, same thing. Remember that in Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to Cornelius in his household, what happened there? And this time, without anyone laying hands on them, and they, the, the, the manifestation of the Spirit came on them before they were baptized. So there's no particular order that way. It's that belief in Jesus Christ and the affirmation, in fact, the presence of, of an apostle there was important too for this confirmation. So now this is the third time this happens. We're keeping it in the context of what God is doing. And so these men are now speaking languages they didn't previously know and prophesying praise to God. The point of this in Acts is that the outward manifestations of the Spirit were meant to be confirming evidence that they had indeed been given new life through faith in Jesus, and therefore they had the indwelling Spirit. 
like every true believer in the early church and like every true believer today. But sensational signs are far from the only or even the primary means by which the life of the Spirit is made known in us. Next week, we'll see that new life in the Spirit results in real life change. Or as John the Baptist told the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they were coming to him and he was baptizing, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Jesus too taught that bad fruit equals a bad tree or no fruit equals a bad tree. True followers or false teachers are both recognized by their fruit. True followers recognized by good fruit, false teachers by their bad fruit. So Paul taught that those who are alive in the Spirit will also bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. The evidence of saving faith in Christ is life change by the power of the Spirit. That will be our emphasis next week. These former disciples of John now see the fulfillment of John's preaching, and they believe in Jesus to save them, and he makes all the difference. I just want you to stop for a second. I know that a lot, that, what, a lot of what we just talked about was putting the, what happened here in a doctrinal context, helping us understand the truth of what the Bible teaches about specific things, but doctrine is not merely head knowledge. The truth that we understand impacts the way that we worship. And so we rightly worship God according to a true understanding of how God presents himself in his word and how God's people are to behave in response to Jesus Christ. As we continue, we've we now focus our attention on a contrast to these men, these 12, that takes place when Paul preaches in the synagogue. As we do, take note that entrance into God's kingdom for anyone is contingent upon faith in Jesus. Jesus indeed makes the difference. In Ephesus, Paul preaches in the synagogue of the Jews, and this synagogue also becomes the the synagogue of the Jewish proselytes, Gentiles who became, in essence, become Jews. He preaches in their synagogue for three months, which is possibly longer than he did or was able to do in any other city. And during that time, Paul spoke boldly, the text tells us. He was reasoning with, or he was, he was debating, he was, he was arguing, he was persuading them that about the kingdom of God, persuading them that Jesus is the entrance to God's kingdom. This is no minor issue to Paul. He will argue from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. He will try to persuade them that they can only enter God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he speaks boldly. But it doesn't last beyond the three months because some of them become stubborn, hardened, and they continue in unbelief, unbelief being disobedience to what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. And so they speak evil, they revile, they insult the way to all those gathering in the synagogue. The way is a term that Luke uses to distinguish the followers of Jesus from those who do not believe that he is the way to God. Remember, 
These were people who have the Hebrew scriptures and, and who fear God, that who believe themselves to be among the unique people of God, but even that is insufficient without Jesus and without personal faith in Jesus. Refusing to accept Jesus as the way is to remain outside God's kingdom. So, people, so Paul moves his daily preaching, his reasoning, his arguing that Jesus is the Christ and the only way to God, and he takes the believers, the disciples, with him, and they begin meeting daily in the hall of Tyrannus. We know nothing more about this hall specifically. Maybe its, name, maybe its name is derived from the person who owned it, the meeting space, or maybe it's named after a prominent philosopher who taught there. But nonetheless, what's more important, even though Paul has to move locations, he continues for two years reasoning daily. That is focus and dedication, <laughs> You picture Paul being in the marketplace, uh, mending uh, tents and other things, working with his hands, working with leather, working with materials to provide for himself and the others who are helping him. And then you picture Paul in the late morning, early afternoon, when others are resting, Paul goes and he presents Christ in the hall of Tyrannus. And the next morning he goes back to work, and the next afternoon... He's where he would rather be, which is presenting Christ in the hall of Tyrannus daily for two years. That is focus and dedication. Whatever else happens, Paul maintains laser focus on proclaiming Christ. Remember that Paul, Saul, had zealously persecuted those belonging to the way, Acts chapter 9, 1 and 2 pursuing them even beyond Jerusalem, that he might bring them back, men and women, to be tried and convicted of false teaching concerning the Messiah, to be tried and convicted of blaspheming God. He zealously persecuted the followers of the way. But after being personally confronted with Jesus Christ, Jesus makes the difference. After Paul being personally confronted with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he had become a man of singular vision, of singular focus to spread the word of the Lord, the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. And then as it involves others impacted by Paul's preaching, no, and no wonder, and no wonder to be around Paul must have been like catching the most contagious form of COVID. He is laser-focused on Jesus. And notice how being around Paul impacts the other people in Ephesus who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The clear implication of verse 10, I believe, of those impacted by Paul's preaching is twofold. Those who receive Jesus as God's word revealed are accepted into fellowship with God and his people. They become God's people together like we hear every place in Acts. And then they participate together in the Spirit-empowered mission to make the word of the Lord known far and wide. Although Paul himself may not have left Ephesus, it doesn't sound like Paul leaves Ephesus. 
But his preaching daily this way for two years has the effect of not only now reaching more Gentiles in Ephesus, because he left the synagogue and uh, preaches in the hall of Tyrannus, but the impact of his preaching ministry spreads the word of the Lord, the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I keep repeating that to you because it's in our text uh, here and at verse 20, the word of the Lord, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises. And it spreads the word of the Lord to all the residents of the whole region of Asia, that Asia Minor section. You know where, where Ephesus is? John, I think I have a map again. That whole section there of Asia, right? All, every, all these cities along the coast, possibly other towns near here, people are spreading the gospel in that entire region. It was clear that they had come to believe, as Paul did, that entrance into God's kingdom for anyone is contingent upon personal faith in Jesus. And now as we wrap up for today talking about the difference that Jesus makes, that he is the object of our faith, Paul's missionary ministry in Ephesus first underscores that we must be sure that we are in Christ Jesus. It's not enough to be religiously sincere, even to be very near to those who are in the family of God. These first men even, even cared a great deal about their sin. They even expressed repentance to be looking for the Messiah, but they needed personal faith in Jesus. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you putting the full weight of your faith in Christ alone? Are you putting the full weight of your faith in Christ alone? Who can bear the weight of, of, of your eternal responsibility before God? Only Jesus. Jesus is, is like the rope. I used to use a rope swing all the time when I was a kid. And, and if I was trying to cross a gap or swing myself out into the river, I trusted that rope completely. So I want you to picture yourself trying to get from one side of a raging river to the other using only a rope swing. And there was only one way from this side to that side. Or, or the middle is this chasm. Or, or picture that Jesus is a bridge. And there is only one bridge, and you must be willing to put your full weight of faith on that bridge. It is the only bridge. You will not get from this side to this side without putting your full weight on that bridge. Or maybe even better, picture yourself in the middle of an ocean, and you think you're just fine, and you're treading water. Oh, I'm doing fine. What will happen soon? You will drown eternally. But a lifeline has been offered to you. Take hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual life is found only in Jesus. To be near the truth is insufficient without personal faith in Jesus. And it is certainly unacceptable to God to do anything else with Jesus other than to believe in him on the terms that God has presented in his word. Anything else is refusal. It is, it is continuance in stubborn unbelief. We must be sure that we are in Christ Jesus. Be certain this morning that you have 
personal repentance toward God and faith that Jesus is God and that he himself, by what he accomplished on a cross and by his resurrection, is the only means to be saved, the only means to be reconciled to God. And you will receive the blessing of knowing that you are in God's kingdom, that you are his child, you are in his family, and that his Holy Spirit will be in you, be present with you, will be the seal of your salvation, and that his power will be at work in you, and his power will be at work through you. And so, too, one more thing for us this morning, through the example of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, we're reminded again to ask, is Jesus your purpose and your persuasion? In the way you are living your life right now at this moment, is it clear that Jesus is your purpose and persuasion? Our our mission and our message must be Jesus. Jesus is the ark of rescue from the flood. You know that picture from the Old Testament? of Noah and his family being rescued is a picture used again by Peter in the New Testament to say that Jesus is the ark of rescue. Are you going around telling people the flood of God's judgment, his wrath is coming upon all who remain outside of Christ? Please come in. You must be sure that you are in the ark of Jesus Christ and recognize that you are doing everything that you can because of what Christ has done for you to be telling others, please come into the ark. Or to be telling people that Jesus is the temple. The way to be in God's presence to worship God is to enter through the temple of Jesus Christ. We do not know who all will enter, but that's not our job. Our privilege is to know that we are in Christ and to invite everyone to come to join us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even so, with belief in the power and the truth of God's word, we preach Christ crucified. A crucified Messiah is what the Jews balked at. If we cave to the temptation to give people some version of Jesus that they can stomach, they remain unsaved. In the Jewish synagogues, most people balked at the notion of the Messiah dying on a Roman cross, so they they opposed the way. But Paul couldn't give them some more palatable version to their liking. No, they must know that Christ had to become the perfect sacrificial lamb, because our sin needed permanent payment. Otherwise, we could never be in the presence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased our forgiveness. We cannot give people a more palatable version. Salvation only comes because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It should be evident to you especially and to others that Jesus has become your purpose. He impacts all of your plans. And that Jesus has become your persuasion That worship of Jesus with your whole life is what motivates you. By God's mercy and grace to us, the difference in us is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you have loved us first through your son, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for drawing us to yourself, for persuasively convicting us that Jesus is the only way. Thank you for bringing us into the ark of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the temple by which we enter into your presence. And thank you that one day we will feast with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, I pray for each heart here to be persuaded to repent of their unbelief and their sin and their self-effort and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that for those of us who are in Christ and continue to battle with selfishness and wanting to entertain ourselves and being focused on the wrong things, God, that you will give us a focus once again that Jesus will be our purpose and our persuasion. We ask these things in his name. Amen. In God's providence, it's so appropriate that as we're studying in Acts, trying to become people who follow Jesus like Paul and like Peter, that at the same time we're on, on communion Sundays, we're studying in John where Jesus teaches his disciples that he must be their ongoing sufficiency. It's not enough for you to just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be really excited about serving Jesus. You need Jesus to serve Jesus. And so even as we came to Jesus in faith, we keep coming back to Jesus. He is our sufficiency for salvation and he is our sufficiency to serve him. So I want to encourage you that even as you're, you're trying to change your plans, your, your purposes, your, your persuasion, you will only do so by drawing near to Jesus. I want to challenge you again that you don't know Jesus while your Bible gathers dust. And our prayer is a measure of our dependency on God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If that is true, then you are on your knees pleading for help. I challenge you again to draw near to Jesus and depend on him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for making provision for us for our salvation through Jesus Christ. He are, is our sufficiency. Jesus makes all the difference for all people who have ever put their faith in you. Without Jesus, there would be no salvation for us. And God, you have shown us in your word that, that we, your new covenant people, also must depend on Jesus. We must abide in him. We must keep coming to him to be our sufficiency to serve you. And so, by the comfort and conviction of your Holy Spirit, Father, keep drawing us near to yourself. Give your people the necessary discipline and commitment to meet with you in your word and to, be, to depend on you in prayer. And we pray that you will receive all the glory 
now and forever. In Christ's name, amen.